This week on Behind the Idea, we revisit blue-green vacations. You might remember the timeshare developer is trading cheaply due to a broken merger deal, or Mike's love of their Big Cedar Resort website. We spoke with Seeking Alpha author Safety and Value about the situation and why he likes it. One thing we hit on was how this flips the usual upside-downside for a merger-arb sort of play. I, I think the upside on BXG is probably pretty well-defined. I don't BBX will pay more than $16 a share. I think that's really unlikely. But because of the underlying business value, I think the downside is relatively protected, which makes me comfortable holding it. Mike was also curious about the Manhattan Club and why the opportunity is exclusive to Blue Green and Safety and Value explained the story. So you absolutely could. You could go on eBay and buy a Manhattan Club timeshare. Cool. The problem is they're not going to... They're, they're not going to let you set up shop in the lobby and hard sell people to buy it from you for 25 grand. Investors can often reduce special situations into a specific catalyst and opportunity without considering the full picture or context. Safety and Value has a broader perspective on blue-green vacations, and he shares it on this week's Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. And I'm Mike Taylor. We're going back to an individual idea we covered a few weeks ago, Blue Green Vacations, ticker symbol BXG. The timeshare and real estate operator is in a special situation of sorts, as a broken buyout has left it undervalued in the view of Seeking Alpha author safety and value. We reviewed the company in August and liked its timeshares, or at least its Ozarks Resort Big Cedar, but weren't fully sure about the opportunity. So to break it down further, we're actually speaking with safety and value who has insight on both the specific idea and the industry that it's in. Before we begin, Behind the Idea is the podcast that looks at what makes great investment analysis work. We take ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem and break them down piece by piece. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Neither Mike nor I have any positions in any stocks mentioned, while safety and value is indeed long BXG. And real quick... Daniel mentioned to me that I should be a little less breathless in some of my reads, but so here we go. This is going to be a very straight ahead read of our sponsorship ad. Behind the Idea is brought to you by Seeking Alpha Pro Plus. Pro Plus subscribers get early access to top ideas like this Blue Green Vacations thesis by Safety and Value, plus a lot of other real time alerts and exclusives. For a 30 day free trial, Go to SeekingAlpha.com slash ProPlus. That's SeekingAlpha.com slash P-R-O-P-L-U-S. Nice and professional, huh, Daniel? You like that? Very smooth. Very smooth. Yeah, smooth. Smoothed it out. No pausing for breath. Pretty good. Okay. (laughs) Great great work. All right. Safety and value. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, guys. I'm happy to be here with you today. So let's just... There were just some aspects of this story that... I. I felt that the BBX angle was the most interesting one in the fact that they're a 90% owner and that they're, they had an offer on the table. They pulled it. They, they originally IPO'd BXG, et cetera. So just high level, how does this work? BBX is a much smaller company by market cap and I think by enter, enterprise value. So what, like what's going on? How does it work that BBX is making the buyout? Like what's, it just seems like the market, something's weird here. Could you explain it a little? Sure. So BBX, as you mentioned, owns 90% of BSG, and intuitively you think that they should be worth more money. They have more shareholder equity than BSG. 
but they do have a smaller, smaller market cap and smaller enterprise value. And I think basically the way to look at that is that the market values the, the BDXX, their BXG stake as a negative value. Their other, other businesses are much smaller. Their uh, sugar business hasn't probably reached scale. And there's a pretty significant um, amount of GNA at the BBX level. So I think um, that, and that kind of ties back to why they, they took, took Bluebeam public in the first place, I think, was to try and unlock the value of what is their, their kind of um, keystone primary asset in Blue Green. And, and basically it didn't work. The market said, well, we think Blue Green has value. Um, and the market isn't valuing Blue Green anywhere close to, to its competitors. Um, in the timeshare business, but the market never really ascribed that value to to BBX, and I think that's the biggest reason why BBX wants to take Blue Green back uh, into being a fully owned subsidiary is that they're not getting credit for for the value of Blue Green um, in their own own uh, share price. So it, it's um, basically taking Blue Green public for them. I think it failed, and so they want to unwind it. Wow, there's a lot going on there. First of all, it's interesting. So do you think the, the market valuation of BBX taking blue-green aside is inefficient valuation? Because there's a lot of sort of layers of inefficiency and efficiency when you talk about these ownership, ownership structures. So how do, you, how do you sort of sort through all of that? I think anytime you do a sub the parts of a company, the piece that sometimes gets missed is the um, capitalizing the overhead cost of running, running that uh, kind of holding company structure. And I think in this case, if you were to sell off all the pieces of BBX and liquidate it, you would get much, much more than the current BBX market cap. But BBX has majority owner, and I don't get the sense that that's on the table in any way. I think that GNA is probably permanent, and I think the market is. I don't want to say the market is efficient because that's kind of not a core belief of mine, but I think the market's not far off in capitalizing the BBX GNA and subtracting it from kind of a, some of the parts of BBX. And another question here then is what what sort of you you describe the BXG IPO as a failure from BBX's perspective, which makes sense. I think it IPO'd at fourteen a share and it's at about ten now. But my question to you is, what's to prevent what protections do you or other minority shareholders have that management couldn't do a take under or a squeeze out or something that would allow them to bring BXG back private for a relatively low price? I mean, I guess they can't underbid the shares as they are, but it would seem like it would be pretty easy for them to take a, a low ball offer and take the last 10% of the company private. Sure, I think that is um, that is a risk here. It's probably, in some ways, one of the biggest risks to the thesis because BBX has more than ninety percent under Florida law. They could do a short form merger. They don't even the last um, the last offer where they uh, offered to take um, BHG at sixteen. Um, there wasn't going to be a shareholder vote on on that deal. Um, the shareholder protections, though, are under the Florida Business Corporations Act. If you dissent to the transaction, you have appraisal rights. Now. That's not a uh, something that I would particularly look forward to to doing. I don't want to go to Broward County, Florida, and and sue BBX. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun to me. And given the size of my position here, I don't. It probably wouldn't be economic for me to exercise appraisal rights. Um, but I do think the fact that they're possible 
has kind of a game theory protection to it in and of itself, because there are a lot of funds that buy shares in situations like that specifically to exercise appraisal rights, like legal type background um, investors, which I think would support getting out. And I think the fact that um, BBX offered so much more so recently when not a whole lot has changed probably would be a pretty compelling piece of of, uh, of evidence in in an appraisal lawsuit. So um, while I do agree that's a risk, I think there are some uh, some mitigating factors. I guess maybe comfortable house position, um, but that's definitely a risk. Are you sure you don't want to go to Broward County? <laughs> Fort, Fort Lauderdale is pretty, yeah. pretty fun it's town. It's in Canada, Mike. So uh, let's see. It, it, it depends when. Oh, is how I'll put it. I think they just had a they just had a hurricane there. I think though, didn't they? So <laughs> hurricane season, maybe not so much. If I can, if I can yeah, go in so January and for them to... write that off on my taxes and investment <laughs> yeah. expense, then, well, maybe. Then maybe it wouldn't be so bad. So, all right. Well, BXG Management, if you're listening, now <laughs> is the prime opportunity to, to sort of swoop in here. Okay. So, or Daniel, you have something? Well, my question just on this, I wonder how much the fact that BBX is public is to some degree the safeguard because... They originally spun out BXG or IPO'd BXG, hoping to better reflect their underlying value. And I guess that's potentially, you know, you mentioned the additional GNA and its sugar hasn't taken off and their other real estate plays haven't necessarily been a big deal. Maybe that's that's sort of the, you know, set aside any sort of moral issues or shame or whatever else and also set aside the potentially arduous process of arbitration the idea that they are still a public company does that give you any like does that make sense as a degree of reassurance that they will need to come to the markets at some point and their reputation is at stake yeah i think that's probably a factor too if you read um bbx's investment presentations you can see kind of some frustration with their um, market value um that they're trying to present to some of the parts calculation on how what they think their shares should be trading at um, and I think if they do something that the market views as really abusive to minor minority shareholders at BXG, um, I don't think that would help their, uh, their case with the market that they're going to treat the minorities at, at BBS fairly in the future. Right. So I think anything that they would make up in, um, make up in maybe saving some money on, on BXG shareholders, I think they would probably lose that off their market cap, uh, at the BBX level because it would hurt the market's perception of, of the management team. Cool. So stepping, one thing that we always want to hit on when we're talking about theses related to mergers or acquisitions is the sort of standalone value and the ongoing viability of the target companies. So can you tell us a little bit about your assessment of the business and the breakdown of the various business lines. We had some fun with that on the podcast, uh, especially the Manhattan clubs. Uh, <laughs> we'd like to hear sort of your high level view of the business in general. You bet. So um, BXG is the timeshare developer. So they uh, build and buy resorts and, and sell them as timeshares. Um, that's not a popular business in many senses. I think there's a lot of people who have ethical concerns about the, the kind of hard sell nature that those companies use to sell their product. Uh, it's not a soft product. It's definitely a sold product. 
But there's also a lot of comps in the marketplace. Um, there are a number of other companies that sell timeshares, and they pretty much all trade at valuations um, or multiples of EBITDA a good few turns higher than, than BXG. When I originally wrote the piece up, um, there was one of the comparables that was kind of a similar multiple, Hilton Gratifications. And they've, uh, they're up considerably since the article on takeover speculation from, from private equity funds. So, um, at least initially, I probably picked the wrong timeshare developer. Hilton Gratifications would have been a, would have been a better choice there because they're kind of double digit percent in the last months. But I think that does sort of speak to the, um, some of the undervaluation in the industry, uh, itself. Um, just based on the comparable, comparable, um, companies. The other piece that, uh, I know you guys were talking about was the Manhattan Club. That's um, something that really excited me about this thesis was, I think, especially with a, a special situation, if you don't have something in the, the business that you think maybe the market might be missing, it can be pretty risky because you're assuming that your assessment of the odds of a deal happening is better than everybody else's. And that's not a, a take that I like to, to take often um, because I don't, I don't like to assume that I'm smarter than everybody else in the market because history hasn't borne that out. But I don't mind a, a thesis where I'm saying, well, I think people have maybe missed this New York Attorney General filing on one piece of this company. I think that's probably quite a bit more common than all the merger arm hedge funds misreading the odds. Um, so to talk about Manhattan Club, Green has taken over the, uh, the, the management contract there after a, a settlement with the previous owners of Manhattan Club and the New York Attorney General. And because of the, what I'm going to say, alleged business practices of the previous owners, where um, some of the people who had bought timeshares were maybe having a hard time using the timeshares and the, the fees to use the timeshares were continually going up and up and up to levels that maybe didn't make sense um, at the Manhattan Club, the resale value of Manhattan Club timeshares is approximately zero. So the people who had bought Manhattan Club timeshares in the past, and now maybe are, are paying high fees, having a hard time booking. A lot of them have concluded that they don't want that Manhattan Club timeshare anymore, which, I mean, that makes sense, right? If you're paying a high fee for something you're having a hard time using, you probably don't want it anymore. And so I think there's a real opportunity for Blue Green to go into the resale market and, uh, and buy those, um, those previous timeshares for a dollar each sort of thing and put them into the trust. And, and sell them as trust points with Manhattan Club access for thousands of dollars. And any business where you have a cost of goods sold of 0% is likely to have attractive gross margins. Now, they have high selling costs because they do the high-pressure sales presentations. But anytime you're getting Midtown Manhattan real estate for free, that's a potential catalyst in my mind. Not to be too cheeky about it, but why can't Daniel and I jump in and bid on these ourselves you what's the so you absolutely could you could go on ebay and buy a manhattan club timeshare the Whoa. problem is they're not gonna they're, they're not gonna let you set up shop in the lobby and hard sell people to buy it for me for 25 grand so that's kind of that's kind of the issue and the other piece of it is the financialization of it so blue green is putting these in a trust and mixing them with so the trust will own these manhattan club deeds but it'll also own deeds in places with lower operating costs like the ozarks where you mentioned Previously, because the, the Ozarks looks pretty nice, but I think everything costs less in the Ozarks than it does in town Manhattan. So I agree with you. You could, you could go and buy them for $2 and out Bitcoin, but what are you going to do with it after? I don't know. 
but I figure I, I'm I'm looking at the page right now and I'm kind of <laughs> I'm seeing that bid price of one dollar and I'm thinking I don't know do something maybe sneak sneak in there and set up like a little game room or something <laughs> I don't know yeah Just I've, pure I've, consumption what googling what to do with with Manhattan Club property. Um, so. It's already, it's got negative intrinsic value just because of the Googling cost, the cost <laughs> I have to spend, spend my time figuring it out. But I, okay. anyway. If Mike quits his job as a seeking alpha editor, I apologize. That's, I'm not taking responsibility <laughs> for that. Yeah, it's it's the only positive present value activity I currently <laughs> do. So, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, listeners, though, you can go on. I'm on the eBay page right now that's listing a Manhattan Club one-bedroom annual timeshare for sale, for, and the current bid is $1. So for $1.25 or more, you could. Uh, nine people watching. No one is interested in this. Uh, so <laughs> anyway. Not, uh, not investing advice, but. We're, we're, yeah, I, I just, that's just informational. It's just there. And I'm not, look, I'm not part of the SGNA line of, Blue green. So, okay. Anyway, we can move on. I think trying to solve the problem of what to do with one of these things is uh, not the purpose of the podcast, but it's interesting that the price is a dollar. Uh, so that's some good evidence there. So long-term BXG, let's, let's sort of divorce it from the special situation aspect. You're, it sounds to me like you're with this Manhattan club opportunity and then just the general business you see this as kind of attractive from a relative value and and that Manhattan Club is reflective of their some industry level advantage or some competitive advantage that they can take advantage they can do this in a way that like there that's a moat is essentially what you're saying uh that we can't cross is that right yeah yeah i mean like i said i think you and daniel won't be able to set up shop in the lobby of the Manhattan Club so that is a little bit moat from on that business I think more as a catalyst, though, because so I think BXG is trading at the lowest end of the pure concept for multiples, and if multiple doesn't reflect Manhattan Club sales, they haven't taken over Manhattan Club management yet. That's going to happen um, kind of next year and into the future, and so um, there's kind of some business growth from which I think is going to probably be quite a profitable business for them that I don't think the market is seeing. So. There's kind of two two ways to win on a more fundamental side. They could re-rate to a market multiple, and I think their underlying um, business performance is likely to improve because of of the Manhattan Club um, relative to their competitors. So, well, it's not. I wouldn't say BXG is is a super high quality business that maybe you want to pound in your portfolio and keep forever. It's not a. It's not maybe a, a Berkshire Hathaway or whatever like that. But um, I think for a, a kind of a medium term type time frame. The next two or three years, I think it's reasonably attractive. And to me, that makes me more willing to hold it as a special situation idea because I think it it kind of caps the downside, I guess, right? I know you guys have been talking about Joel Greenblatt a lot. And I think that's always his point about um, merger type situations is if you have a up 10%, down 50% as your kind of binary potential options, that's maybe not really attractive. But I think with PXG, maybe it's kind of up to 15 or 16 on a takeover and maybe it's kind of down a buck or two um, if that doesn't materialize as kind of a more of a worst case scenario. So I, I think the uh, 
the, the ratio of upside to downside risk seems attractive to me. Well, we, I'm sure listeners are, have had their fill of Greenblatt, but I do, we do want to ask you, <laughs> so we've had our, we do want to ask you about that, about him, but specific to here, it's not, what are your time frame? You mentioned two to three years as sort of a holding period, not including the special situation. What do you like, what are you sort of, when you're looking at the time frame for this position, how are you thinking about it? Is it that two to three, two to three year time frame or something else? Yeah, I think probably for me this would be a two to three, uh, two to three year time frame hold, um, and that is related to humbleness in the market, like I kind of mentioned before. So I think blue green probably deserves a multiple in the middle of the comp set, and I think over that two to three year period, its results relative to the rest of its industry will probably improve. But if we get two to three years through and the market doesn't agree with me by then, then I'm going to strongly reevaluate that and think about. To me, that means I probably missed something, I guess. Um, and I don't think this is a, it's not a, well, their return on capital is pretty strong. It's not a business that I want to own for the rest of my life, I know. But as far as when BBX might step in again, is there is there any time frame around that? Or is it or is it sort of the other, you know, lurking is the fact that any time over those two to three years, BBX might decide that they want to, especially if they're dissatisfied with the market valuation, they might decide to make another. Yeah, option. I think um, I think if BBX is going to do it, I think it makes sense for them to do it sooner rather than later. They're spending extra admin costs running two public companies all the time. Um, but I also don't pretend to be inside their boardroom going to their meetings and stuff, right? So I would say if they're going to do it, it would make sense to do it in the next two to three years, and. If they don't, I would sure. I, well, I would wonder why. I would. That would probably be as long as I'd be willing to wait. Got it. Okay. Uh, one last quick question, specifically on BBX and BXG, is just yesterday. I think we reported news that BB BXG CFO stepped down from that role, but is still in the role of CFO at BBX. And I guess it sort of speaks to that the the connectedness between the two companies. But any. Just because it was a news story, I wanted to make sure we hit it. Any Anything of note from your perspective about that news? So, yeah, the CFO of, uh, of Blue Green did resign. Um, he'd been there for quite a long time, so I'm looking at that a little bit more as uh, a retirement than potentially a, a, a big negative catalyst where the CFO was resigning because there's spiders in the closet or something. Um, and he is getting replaced by the CFO of BBX, um, who's keeping that job. So the CFO of BBX and the CFO of BXG are now going to be the same person. And um, to me, that seems like, it seems indicative to me that maybe they are going to do um, uh, this this deal, uh, restart the BBX-BXG deal, because if the, if the BXG CFO is retiring, they replace them with somebody new externally, and then they do this deal in six months and lay that person off, then they have to pay them up, right? So... Uh, to have the one person who's going to be doing both jobs at some point anyway, doing them for a short time now, seems to make sense to me. So I don't, I don't view that as a big negative. Whereas maybe a, a CFO resigning usually would be something that you'd want to kind of take a hard look at potentially, especially in a, in a, uh, a merger type stock. But I would say uh, in this case, I'm I'm pretty comfortable with that. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I, I misread the the news earlier. I had thought that. It was sort of already a dual CFO who then just stepped down from one role. But your explanation is correct, but also makes sense why that would be more 
less of a standout. So yeah, so just since we covered Greenblatt and you've brought him up earlier, just as sort of a bonus question, what what do you and because this feels like such a it is a special situation. It's not the type per se that he either liked or got into, but it seems in that ballpark. What do you I, I I'm presuming you've read his book, but what whether or not you have, what do you think about that approach to investing and how does it resonate with how you invest? I, I know you run a marketplace service on Seeking Alpha called the Microcap Review. So your small stocks is of interest as well, but I know you cover quite a bit of these special situations. So how do you, what do you take from Greenblatt? So I'm a huge fan of Greenblatt. I think You Can Be a Stock Market Genius is terribly named, but it's also my very favorite investing book. Um, and I've, I've taken a number of things that I think are kind of my core investment principles from from that book. Um, I think the biggest thing that I like out of his book is his, um, he, he calls rule number four, pick your spots. And to me, um, like he talks a lot about spin outs and, and things like that. And I know you guys talked about that in your last couple episodes here. But for me, I know spin outs have gotten really popular, but I think little companies, and you mentioned that's, a lot of what I, I invest in is microcaps haven't. And even more what I do than little companies is little special situations. So there's not a big percentage of the market that's looking at a sub hundred million dollar merger of two BDCs is one that I uh, I was looking at recently here. And things like that just don't they don't attract a lot of attention. People don't want to have anything to do with them. And there's not a lot of competition from big huge funds with um, you know arbitrage experts and things like that because it's not economic for them to hire people in midtown Manhattan um, to look at something where maybe you could only deploy a few hundred thousand in capital. Well, for me, deploying a few hundred thousand in capital is significant. If you're running a $500,000 or $500 million fund or a $5 billion fund, it doesn't move the needle at all. So um, to me, pick your spots means go for, for things where you're not going to get a lot of competition and, and things that people don't... Um, are looking at because that's where you're most likely to find investing. I think for a lot of things, the market is pretty efficient. Um, for microcap mergers and merger securities and things like that, I don't think the market is efficient at all. Um, and the other one I really like from Greenblatt is his uh, his piece of looking down, not up. And I think that that comes back to kind of what we were talking about about BXG. Is I I think the upside on BXG is probably pretty well defined. I don't, I doubt BBX will pay more than $16 a share. I think that's really unlikely. But because of the underlying business value, I think the downside is relatively protected, which makes me comfortable holding it. And I think that's something that a lot of special situation investors maybe miss, is that when you have a defined upside, you really need to watch the, the downside there. And if there's a downside, maybe that's something you don't want to be exposed to. Yeah, so I think those are kind of the big big things that uh, that I take out of Greenblatt. Um, it's interesting how often Marquette runs, though, over kind of long periods of time. I talked a little bit, just very briefly, about Hilton Grand Fusions and their performance in the last kind of couple months. Um, but they were a spinoff from uh, from the Hilton Hotels Company, as was uh, Park Resorts, which has now gone down pretty dramatically in the last few months. And it kind of just, it's interesting to me how something like Greenblatt's um, his case study from his book about Marriott spinning off host, or I guess technically Marriott International was the spinoff, but it's a really similar similar setup. And it's just interesting to me how 
history rhymes a little bit even with a couple decades between. Yeah, we were, we were the 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 whole industry. I think you talk about. I feel like Wyndham is also a spinoff, and the the Marriott Vacations Company VAC. I think it, it feels like there's a lot of this. This arguably is a sector that doesn't look great on paper, and so gets spun off often. Which I guess potentially, especially as you go down the market cap list, can create opportunities. Is uh, sort of what it on on first blush seems to be here. Yeah, no, that's very true. Um, Wyndham spun off Wyndham Destinations a couple years ago. Marriott spun off VAC. Hilton spun off Hilton Vacations. Um, and before the Marriott's International took over Starwood, um, Starwood actually spun off their timeshare firm, which was called Vistana, but in kind of a weird corporate connection, the Marriott timeshare spinoff, VAC bought it from, from Starwood. So they kind of, they ended up with, with the parent and the spinoff companies ended up merging, but separately. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how the sector would have so much of that. What do you, what do you make of the, I mean, you sort of hit on the idea of that you look down, not up. And so it's not the typical merger arb, but is there anything else given you spend a lot of time in merger arb, anything else about you being comfortable with it as compared to Greenblatt for him, it, w- it didn't work. So why, why does it work for you? Why is it something that you are comfortable with? Well, I would be the last person to ever disparage Greenblatt, but I think part of it is probably size of, of portfolio. And he talks a little bit about that in his book, the kind of, uh, Smaller size is an advantage. Um, BXG is the largest company that I've done a merger arb on in a long time, and I, I took this position that I have right now after um, after the merger broke uh, or the kind of the first deal broke. Um, so it was it's kind of it's not a pure merger arb, so to speak. Most of the merger arb that I do is in very much sub hundred million dollar companies, where somebody like a Greenblatt who's managing a lot more money than me. Um, would be able to try to. I think, I think large cap merge arbitrage is almost always efficiently priced, and it's it's a game where there's a lot of people with very low costs of capital as well. So that's something I would never choose to to debut. Great. Uh, one last question for you. I'm back on the eBay page for the Manhattan Club uh, one bedroom annual timeshare <laughs> for sale. I did some more due diligence, and it looks like for a ten week share, uh, it's a annual maintenance fee of $3,088.94 plus a couple hundred dollars in setup fees. Are you sure this wouldn't be a good fit? I know that Fort Lauderdale maybe is not your favorite (laughs) uh, location, but, you know, given that you're an investor, there might be some value in having some, you know, presence in Midtown. And that, uh, if you do that, that's like paying a monthly rent of uh, around $1,300, which for Manhattan real estate seems like a really good deal. So, what do you say? Does that look a little bit more attractive to you, the Manhattan Club timeshare? Well, I think the Manhattan Club fees are about three thousand dollars a week, aren't they? Like, I'm I'm talking off the top of my head now, but I, I think it's I think it's about three thousand dollars a week in fees. At oh, that's not an annual fee. That's a weekly. Well, fee. it's you pay it annually, but you only get one. Well, that week makes of it a tougher at sell. Club. So that's why people are ten weeks. Oh, I, I don't think so. I don't know. I, I'm I'm not saying you're wrong, you but that, it's not my understanding of the deal. Look, I'll throw in a free free trip, free trip to DC. 
you know, I've met people before, and it sounded just like this. <laughs> don't leave. Don't get up. Don't get up. My lovely assistant's coming. <laughs> All right, well. Uh, I'm, I'm really worried Mike is going to, the time sharing is going to be just yeah, sitting there on my screen, like, calling out to me. <laughs> That's right. Uh, okay, well, I'll work on you. I'm just, I'm going to go back. <laughs> I'm going to go back to the hill that I really like the title of Joel Greenblatt's book and I don't care who who disagrees. I that is my hill to to wither and die on my contrarianism, but um yeah. And it's not no time shares of it. Not on that hill. You have full not, ownership not of that hill, Daniel. No. <laughs> no liquidity at all. Yeah. You'll never get out. Yeah, well We'll see if I could monetize it or financialize it. All right, great. Well, Safety and Value, this was uh, really great getting fuller picture of this and also getting to spend a little bit more time with our friend, Mr. Joel Greenblatt. So thank you for taking the time and best of luck with the position. Thanks so much, Dan. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't done so yet, please leave us a rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. By the way, if you haven't caught any of our new special segments interviewing Pro Plus Top Idea authors about their theses, watch out for those. Mike has done one on Gym Group with Jorge Robles and one on Hill International with Investing 501. This is Mr. Kiyan for production. Thank you for listening and see you next week on Behind the Idea.